Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 22. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with the hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian woman, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Good morning, let's um, pray as we stand. Father God, please use this part of your word which we've already read to help us see our lives from your point of view and to trust you in whatever we are going through now and in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. And uh, can I say Happy New Year to you? And then having said that, let me give you some unhappy facts about the persecution of Christians last year. Uh, over 3,000 of uh, our fellow Christians, if you're a Christian, were killed for their faith in 2018. 215 million spent 2018 where Christianity is illegal, forbidden, or punishable. The worst country to be in was North Korea with over 50,000 Christians in labor camps or prison. And the 10th worst was Iran. And with friends from there joining us here at this church, we're very aware of that. In this country, we have it easier for now, but the Equality Act is forcing on us a new belief and morality, for example, making people accept the whole LGBT agenda, and Christians will fall foul of that. Uh, 
if they don't conform. So, for example, one Christian last year was removed from being a school governor simply for quoting the viewpoint that sex is for heterosexual marriage only. And unless the tide turns, Christians will be removed more and more from public life and office and jobs. So uh, it's not easy to say Happy New Year with a whole heart, is it? The world is neither happier nor newer just because the calendar flipped over. It's still the same old world that doesn't want to know God, that doesn't want God's people reminding it of God, and where God's people are not immune from suffering. And that's the world which the Old Testament book of Exodus teaches us to live in as we begin a new series in that book today. So could you turn back in the Bibles to page 45? Uh, That'll get you to Exodus chapter 1 and verse... So page 45, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. Let me read from the beginning of that again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his Household, And um, I'm sure most of us can sing this from uh, Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, but I will just read it instead. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, over Christmas, I'm sure you've come into a TV program or film. You've asked the others, so what's happened And that's what we need to do here. Because Exodus is book two of the Bible. Uh, We need to go back to book one, Genesis. And you need to be especially aware of the three beginnings in Genesis. So could you turn back to page one, Genesis one, verse one, to remind ourselves of the first beginning. Page one, Genesis one, verse one. which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first beginning is the beginning of everything created, the whole show. Now turn over to Genesis 3, and you'll see that there's a heading at the start of that chapter. That's not part of the Bible. The translators just put it in to help you find your way around. The heading is the fall. And that chapter tells how the human race fell from living in relationship to God Uh, to saying to God, we don't want to relate to you. We, We want to run the show ourselves. And that's the second beginning, the beginning of sin, the beginning of us being fallen, of deserving God's judgment, and of a world where there is no such thing as a happy new year. And now turn on to Genesis 12 and the third beginning. Genesis 12. So we're skipping over chapters 3 to 11, which show how sin progressively wrecks the world. And now we come to where God promises to rescue the wreck. So this is the beginning of rescue. Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord, in other words God, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here comes God's three-part promise. Part 1. I will make of you a great nation. In other words, you're going to be a people. And, part two, I will bless you 
and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, instead of judging you as your sin deserves, I'm going to bless you by bringing you back into relationship with me uh, and through you that blessing is going to reach people of all nations. Skip to verse 7 which says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Part three of the promise, To your offspring I will give this land, so you'll have a place to belong. And up on the screens you can see, you can sum that up by saying it is the promise of God's people living in God's place under God's blessing. And the whole of the rest of the story of the Bible is God keeping that promise. So looking at the picture on the screens, um, Abraham, who gets rebranded Abraham, he has a son Isaac, he has a son Jacob, who is renamed Israel. Israel has 12 sons, including Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. Joseph was then sold into slavery in Egypt by his lovely brothers, but it turns out that was part of the plan to save the whole family. Because Joseph rose to become Pharaoh, the king of Egypt's number two, and he ran a famine relief program which brought his family from starving Canaan down to Egypt and so that they were reunited and spared death. That brings us back to Exodus chapter 1 on page 45. If you flick back to that, Exodus 1, page 45. And whenever you're reading the Old Testament, anywhere downstream of that promise in Genesis 12, the question to ask is, where has God got to in in keeping that promise? So let's take stock. Exodus 1, verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. The, the creche was overflowing, so that the land was filled with them. So looking at the screen, uh, what can we say? The promise of God's people, that gets a big tick. Living in God's place, no, because they weren't yet in the land of Canaan. And it doesn't look like they're living under God's blessing because Egypt for Israel was more like North Korea for Christians. And that's why my three headings are are really three questions that God's people would have been asking back then. Um, Most of us will have asked them if we're Christians and you may be asking them right now. The first is, where is God in all this? Where is he? Look on to Exodus 1 verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. So that's ominous. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. They're a threat. And so here is Pharaoh's plan A, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied. So skip to verse 15 for plan B. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew, in other words, Israelite midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. So finally you get plan C in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews you can chuck into the river. 
So where is God in all that? Labor camps, brutality, genocide. Philip Yancey's recent book is called Disappointment with God, and it's subtitled, Three Questions No One Asks Aloud. And his first question is, why, if God wants relationship with us, does he seem so distant? To put it bluntly, here he seems absent. But look closely, and he's actually present and active. For example, look back at verse 12, which says, But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied. Now, that's hardly obvious supernatural divine intervention. But it is God invisibly behind the scenes working to foil plan A. Then look again at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, which again is not God sort of zapping Egyptians. He just uses these faithful women to foil plan B. It's often been said God works through a person more often than he works through a plan. And that's true here because, frankly, there was no plan that they could hatch in the face of Pharaoh. But God just uses these faithful women who feared him more than any of the other people or pressures around them. And being like them may be all we can do in our position of weakness in a society which is moving rapidly away from God. But God will use that. And then look on to chapter 2, verse 1, as he foils plan C. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So she also feared God more than Pharaoh and did as much as she could. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took him took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, which was desperate, but at least gave him a chance as opposed to no chance. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And if you've never read this story before, this is where your blood should run cold because you think if she's anything like her dad, this child's had it. But remarkably, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister, remember she's, she's watching and waiting stage left, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. And the word God doesn't appear anywhere yet in chapter 2. And that's to teach us that when he looks absent, he's not. Look closer and you can see him working out his plan. Not just despite Pharaoh. The brilliant thing here is it's through Pharaoh. He uses Pharaoh's daughter. He uses Pharaoh's own home to save and protect and to bring up Moses. 
So Pharaoh in the Bible, he basically stands for all the opposition that there is to God, but because of God's sovereignty, all the opposition can do is serve God's plan. That's the story of the cross, isn't it? Just think of the combined opposition of Judas, the Jewish leaders, Herod, Pontius Pilate. All they could do was to serve God's plan that Jesus would end up on the cross as a willing sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Very often we won't be able to see how, but everything and everyone is somehow serving God's plan. So where is God in all this? He is present, he's active, and even at the worst of times, this encourages us to look for the signs that he is still with us. One of, the, one of the parts of a minister's job uh, is walking Christian families through the day of a funeral. And it never ceases to strike me how often a family, at that worst of times, will say, but you know, we've seen God's hand in this, in this, in, in the timing here, in a, in, a, in a token of his blessing there. Second question. What is God going to do about all this? And the answer of chapter 2 is, he's preparing a saviour. That's what he's doing. We've done verses 1 to 10 where the saviour is saved. So now look on to chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. What does that tell you about Moses? Well, it says that even though he was born an Egyptian, brought up as an Egyptian, uh, he identifies with Israel as his people. Um, It says he's obviously got some sense of his destiny to save them. And it also says he's completely headstrong and rash. Because let's face it, what is one dead Egyptian going to achieve? The answer is worse than nothing. Have a look at verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? You're going to bump me off like you bumped off the Egyptian yesterday? And in our Acts 7 reading, Stephen quoted those words twice. Who made you a ruler and judge over us. And Stephen uses that as a picture of what's going on whenever anyone rejects Jesus. Because by nature, what do we do? We look at what Jesus did for us on the cross for our forgiveness, and we say, um, I don't need that. I don't need saving. I've, I've always lived a good life. I've, I've never hurt anyone. And we hear Jesus claim to be our rightful Lord, and we say, I I don't want that. I'll I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong and how I'm going to live. Thanks very much. And I don't know, maybe that's what you're saying to Jesus right now. Uh, I don't need you to save me. I don't want you to run my life. And it'll take a step of humility, actually, to do an about turn. So Moses the Saviour was rejected and he became a picture of how Jesus the Saviour is still rejected. Read on chapter 2 and halfway through verse 14. 
So Moses is rumbled, Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Uh, And he's taken in by a really lovely, hospitable family, skip to verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage, which is the height of hospitality. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner, in other words, stranger in a foreign land. And Exodus uh, chapter 3 says, Moses became a shepherd for his father-in-law, and Acts chapter 7, a little bit later, says that that was for 40 years. So now look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help. In other words, they prayed for 40 years, and nothing happened. How many of your prayers are instantly answered? How many of your prayers, as far as you can see, have never been answered? 40 years, not least because Moses was not ready to be a savior yet, because he needed humbling from being the headstrong prince who thought he could take things into his own hands to being the servant of God. He was prepared to do things God's way. Because the thing about spiritual leadership, home group leader, children's leader, whatever you are, the thing about spiritual leadership is that the key question is not, are you able enough for God to use you? But are you humble enough, dependent enough for God to use you? And the great encouragement of that is that, you know, by God's grace, being humble enough is open to all of us, whereas having loads of talent is not. So what happens here? The Israelites, they had to wait for Moses to return. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's people waiting for the Savior that Moses was a picture of, namely Jesus. And here we are, with Jesus first coming behind us, waiting for him to come again. The whole story is a waiting game. And the point of me saying that is it's so easy to read parts of the Bible uh, like Exodus and, and this extraordinary miraculous deliverance from Egypt or to read the Christmas narrative and you know the angel Gabriel knocking on everyone's door it's easy to to read the Bible and think hey that's the normal life of faith you know we if we were really on good form as Christians we'd be seeing God you know wham bam intervening left right and center it's not the way it is moments like that are the exception in the Bible they're not the rule The rule is the people of God plodding on, trusting God's promises, taking encouragement from the way those promises have already been partly kept and waiting for him to keep them fully. Someone has said, most of the Christian life is a matter of waiting. So what is God going to do about all this? He's preparing a savior and God's people are going to have to wait for him. And 3,000 years later, we still are. Final question. Has God forgotten us? Is that the explanation of what they were going through? Is that the explanation of what you're going through right now? 
No, it's not. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In other words, he knew exactly what they were going through. Now, that does not mean that God had forgotten and then up comes the prayer. He says, oh, thanks very much for, uh, for jogging my memory. It's, it's just Bible speak for saying, of course he hadn't forgotten. Of course he remembered the promise that he'd made and he, he remembered the commitment to them. So why the delay? Why this massive delay over keeping the next step of the promise, which was to get them out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan? Well, back in Genesis, God actually told Abraham that the Israelites would spend 400 years in Egypt. And he explained why. He said that when he did finally let his people into Canaan, it would be, on the one hand, a gift for his people, and on the other hand, it would be a judgment on the people already in Canaan for their godless living. And he said, I want to give them time, time to change. I want to show my patience. And that is still God's way. I mean, that, that's why Jesus didn't return at midnight. That's why the world has another day to hear about him and turn to him. So there's part of the explanation for the delay, but it just begs the next question. Why did they have to spend the delay in slavery of all things? And... Part of the answer to that question is that God intended their rescue from slavery to be a gigantic visual aid of the ultimate rescue that Jesus would pull off on the cross centuries later. But that then begs the question going right back to the beginning. You know, what, why, did God, why did God have a plan that involves sin and the need for rescue from sin in the first place? And at that point you have to back off and say there's no answer. There's no explanation of that. And lots of things happen to us which the Bible doesn't explain and are therefore a complete mystery. And can I say, it is massively important that you take that on board. Um, you meet some Christians who make it sound like there is a clear explanation for absolutely everything, every sadness, setback, injury, accident, you name it. If only you think biblically and hard enough about it, um, you'll see what God is doing, you'll see the lesson that God is teaching you. Rubbish. The Bible says we will go through things that are either a partial or total mystery. I don't even know whether we will understand them all in heaven, in retrospect. Because whereas God's knowledge of what he's doing is like the complete picture of a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, our knowledge of God, even if we could understand the Bible perfectly, is like having, I don't know, 15 or 20 pieces of the puzzle in our hands, and some of them fit together and make sense, and others, you just haven't got a clue. And that's the difference between being God and being us. So by the end of Exodus 2, uh, we haven't understood everything about what's happened and why and the time scale, but 
we have seen that when God looks absent, he is in fact present and active. And we've seen that our part is to look for the signs, however small, that he is at work and is still with us and for us. And the rest of our part uh, is to wait for God to fill more of his promises and ultimately to wait for Jesus to come again. Let's pray. I've been praying in my preparation that God, as you listen to that, would have made all sorts of connections between what Israel was going through and what you're going through. So let me leave you uh, to pray individually uh, about the things that that has brought to the top of your mind.